This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Happy holidays and Happy New Year to all of you. Welcome to Northwest News This Week. Everything ending for December the 31st. And as we get started, you know weather dominated a lot of the stories we had here between the snow level getting up to 7,000 feet, what a nightmare of travel for mountain passes, that ice storm we had before we got into Christmas weekend, then came the winds, then came the rains. We had king tides and suddenly everybody had waterfront property. But there was more to what we had for stories as well. We're about to prove with a collection of the top stories of this week from our reporters, our anchors, and our editors here at Northwest News Radio. Once again, I'm Mark Christopher. You're about to hear stories, including researchers find some clues on why some people lose the sense of smell after coming down with COVID-19. Washington State's Attorney General files a lawsuit against a plastic surgery firm. Also, opioid settlement money begins to arrive around the region. Let's get you now caught up. Scientists say they found a clue that might help solve that mystery of long COVID loss of smell. Symptoms of long COVID include shortness of breath, brain fog, and loss of taste and smell, according to the University of Washington's Post-COVID Rehabilitation and Recovery Clinic. Duke University's Dr. Brad Goldstein led a study that found a possible link to the cause of long COVID loss of smell. He tells WRAL-TV, There seems to be some unresolved inflammation in that area of the nose that we believe is uh, sort of disrupting the smell, smell process. Some patients have been able to regain some of ability to smell with a nasal steroid rinse for the inflammation and smell training where they sniff essential oils a couple of times a day to stimulate the sense but the study could help in development of a drug treatment and because long covid affects other organs and systems goldstein's team hopes there will be better understanding and treatment of other long covid ailments ryan harris northwest news radio just as china eliminates much of its zero covid policy nations around the world are debating now how to stem the spread of a new covid wave from China. Francis Steed Sellers had a story for the Washington Post and shared this with our listeners. Francis, as you report, the U.S. will require health screenings for travelers from China. How strict are the requirements and when does it all begin? It all begins in uh, early January, January the 5th, when there will be requirements for everybody coming from China, regardless of nationality, to have a negative test or to have proof of recovery 10 days after having a case of COVID. So these are the kinds of testing requirements we've seen in the past. They're always highly controversial. One of the big issues here is that U.S. officials really do not know how bad the situation is in China because there's a lack of data coming out of that country. You know, that combination of a lack of data and airport screenings, it's it's all a a bit like deja vu. But there, there are differences, right, compared to the early days. There's some genetic testing that will be done on the virus. Is that to look for new variants? Yes. So there are five airports at the moment that have a voluntary screening program in place. That's going to increase to two more, Seattle and L.A., and that will increase the possibility that U.S. public health officials could spot a new variant before it enters the country. But, you know, travel requirements are always highly debatable. This is a very, very contagious variant. One of the interesting changes now is that because Chinese people have been under this zero COVID policy for such a long time. There are so very, very many of them who have not had any experience of COVID. They're, what people say, immunologically naive. And so they're very vulnerable to the Omicron variant and that that could actually evolve in them, mutate within them and create a new variant. So we've got lots that's new and lots that seems a little familiar. And you interviewed Dr. Ali Mokdad at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a voice that's very familiar to our listeners and his models. They've been critical to the American COVID response. What does he anticipate from the Chinese outbreak? 
So they're looking at very high numbers. They think there could be 300,000 deaths by April or 500,000 if both the government and the population. And the population is a really big question if they all let the virus rip. But, you know, we've seen days in Beijing when people seem voluntarily to have stayed at home. Now, by the end of next year, he said there could be between 1.2 and 1.6 million deaths. His modeling is based largely on what they have seen already in Hong Kong with adjustments made for different patterns in China. There are many more people living in rural situations in China than in Hong Kong. I want to talk a little bit more about that idea of the naivety of immune systems in China without having been exposed to the virus. Their vaccines are also quite a bit different there uh, compared to what's available in the the U.S., right? Right. So their vaccines do not provide a strong immunity and it seems to be very short-lived. So, you know, there's been lots of people saying a smart approach would be to bring in the mRNA vaccines and certainly the U.S. has been offering help with resources so far with no luck. And there's some uh, awareness that the Chinese are developing their own mRNA vaccines. But right now, fewer people have been exposed to the virus and fewer older people, and this is really critical in terms of death, fewer older people have been vaccinated. So the Chinese population itself appears to be very vulnerable and we're not getting good data about how many people are currently dying and what the forecasts there are. There's a lot more to read in the story published online at WashingtonPost.com from Francis Steed Sellers. Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News Radio. As we continue Northwest News for this week, a new look at the homeless problem in America paints an unflattering picture of Seattle and King County. John Lobertini with the story. More than half of the people who live homeless on any given night are in just four states, California, New York, Florida, and Washington. In all, that's close to 600,000 people. But the study from the Department of Housing and Urban Development also reveals Seattle and King County have a homeless problem that ranks third behind only Los Angeles and New York City. That's more homeless than Portland, more homeless than any city in the San Francisco Bay Area. The report suggests there are more than 13,000 homeless people in Seattle and King County. But that number balloons to more than 40,000 over the course of a year when you count those who fall in and out of homelessness. Across America, 4 in 10 have no shelter at night or live on the streets. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Keeping homeless in mind, the state of Washington getting less federal money we found compared to other states to help educate homeless kids, even as the need in our state continues to grow. A study published in the Seattle Times finds in 2019, Washington school districts received an average of 29 federal dollars per homeless student. That's the lowest per student average of all states in 2019, the most recent year for which numbers are available. The federal money comes from the 1987 McKinney-Vento Act. McKinney-Vento is a federal law that provides access to education for families who are experiencing homelessness. Social worker Liliana Godinez explains in a video produced by the state superintendent's office. It's a law that protects children's rights to remain in their school of origin, which is the school that they were attending when they enter homelessness. Experts tell the Times the formula for distributing McKinney-Vento money is flawed. The report says the system inadvertently penalizes state that work hardest to identify students who might need the help. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Corwin. Dangerous cold, heavy snow, and now flooding. Still residents that can't hope in Spokane 
have been refusing to leave. Water and mud is everywhere. Belongings are soaked and tents filled with water at the state's largest homeless camp next to I-90 in East Spokane. Even the warming tent flooded out. Those warming tents in there are essential to them being okay. Julie Garcia, founder of Jewel's Helping Hands, says they have helped the homeless residents move to higher ground where possible and they have relocated the warming tent. Garcia tells KXLY they're making progress in getting some people in the camp to take their offers of shelter or housing. In the middle of all that, we move four people to Catalyst. A federal judge recently blocked city officials from shutting down the camp. There are fewer residents there than last summer, but still more than 400 people living there in makeshift shelters, tents, and broken down RVs. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. This past week brought plenty of storm damage, as you know, to many homes and businesses. Northwest News Radio's Kathy O'Shea and one expert's advice on what to do if you ever experience wind-related damage. Northwest Insurance Council President Canton Brine says the most important thing is to always remain safe. I know some power lines have come down in the Puget Sound region, and it's just important to stay as far away from those as possible and call 911 from a safe location. Brine says the next step should only be taken when it's safe. If it's safe to be in or around your property, then the next call should be to your insurance agent or company to begin assessing the damage. He says there may be minor repairs you can perform yourself, like covering a hole or a broken window, but it's best to seek your insurer's advice before proceeding. You might need to get a contractor out right away and not end up making the damage worse by doing that work yourself if you're not experienced at it. Brian added that documenting your loss thoroughly can help speed your claim. If you can safely take pictures of it with your mobile phone, that's super helpful. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Coming up in our next segment, something called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, and it determines if you get benefits from the Social Security Administration. And as we finish out the year of 2022, we'll look at another story we have of home prices here. And there's this story. One of the places that suffered significant damage from this past week's flooding is the historic Boston Harbor Marina in Olympia. The owner, Kate Gervais, told the Olympian that the damage to their building was so severe they're going to have to remain closed for the foreseeable future. The water rose so high in the nearly 100-year-old building that it damaged seven of their coolers, caused an electrical fire, and destroyed their power grid. Now, flooding is not unusual for that exposed spit of land, but the water levels rose higher than what was predicted, and she says there was little they could do about it. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. As you catch up to the stories here of the week ending December 31st, remember now, for the past year, we have archived all these programs at our website if you want to catch up anytime at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News This Week. Plenty more coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. As we gather another collection of the top stories of the past week here, and welcome back, a plastic surgery firm is being sued by the state attorney general for claims it bribed and intimidated patients who posted negative online reviews. The federal suit from AG Bob Ferguson claims Allure Aesthetic of Seattle, Linwood, and Kirkland required patients to sign non-disclosure agreements or NDAs before treatment, went after clients who posted negative reviews, and had employees post fake positive reviews carefully hidden with the use of a VPN. 
Yen. Cynthia, a medical biller who accompanied a friend seeking gender-affirming care, says she'd never seen a doctor require an NDA, which was part of a huge stack of forms. Their paperwork also had a HIPAA privacy page to sign, yet the policy was not included in the mountain of paperwork. It wasn't posted in the office as required by federal law, and the office staff could not produce a copy of their HIPAA policy when I asked for it. Ferguson says there's potential for a large number of violations of state and federal law, which could be costly, with penalties of $7,500 for each violation. Allure has not yet responded to my request for comment. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. There's a database called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, in which the Department of Labor compiled all of the jobs available in 1977. That 45-year-old list of jobs still informing the Social Security Administration when it comes to approving or denying disability benefits. Lisa Ryan, taking a closer look here for the Washington Post. Lisa, you feature the story of Robert Hurd in your report. Prime of his life, and he suffers a pair of strokes and can't work as an electrician anymore. He needs disability payments. So, tell us what happened. After years of appeals, what did the Social Security judge do? So, um, Mr. Hurd's claim uh, at the appeals level before an administrative law judge was denied. And what happened during his hearing was a vocational expert hired by the Social Security Administration said to him, you know, you can still work at three jobs from this dictionary that you cited, Taylor. And the jobs were pretty obscure. One of them was a nut sorter. The other was a dowel inspector. And the other was an egg processor. And based on this, his claim for benefits was denied because the vocational expert said that these were jobs that an unskilled sedentary person like Mr. Hurd could do. So it's really kind of crazy the the way this operates. The agency has been working for decades to have a modern list of occupations that it would refer to at this stage in the process of reviewing claims, but it hasn't put it into use yet. Now, I looked through this list that you include in your report at WashingtonPost.com. The numbers to me just seem astronomically improbable, like 16,000 estimated jobs for people preparing microfilm or a thousand jobs for film inspectors or, or anybody working as golf ball trimmer. How often is this list Isn't really used? Crazy? Yeah. Well, so basically the Department of Labor abandoned this publication in 1991. 80% of the jobs on it were had last been updated in 1977, which is what we focused on And there were 137 unskilled sedentary jobs left, and those are jobs that disabled people who are going through the process of applying for benefits, in theory, would be able to do. These jobs have been offshored, they've been outsourced, they're all but obsolete, or they've been automated. And the reason disability advocates say this is so terrible that the agency has not updated this list is that in the modern economy, sure, there are more sedentary jobs. We all know that, right? We've, we've evolved from a manufacturing economy where people, you know, do manual labor. But these jobs tend to be more skilled. And a lot of people applying for benefit from the Social Security Administration are unskilled. They don't have college education. You know, they're poor. And so they would not qualify for a lot of the more skilled jobs today. And so the reason you ask is, okay, why is this list still in use? Social Security has spent $250 million paying the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
which has done a really complex, very well-respected survey of jobs that exist now in the national economy. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics told me, hey, you know, we've tested these, these survey questions. We believe that the list is, is perfectly legitimate, and, you know, it's out on our public website. But Social Security isn't using it, and I really could not get a transparent answer for them on on why. And that's the tragedy, really, of the story. A frustrating but absolutely fascinating story, and you can find out more about what role politics may be playing as well. It's all online from Lisa Ryan, WashingtonPost.com. More stories here for the week ending December 31st. Unionizing efforts at employers like Starbucks and Amazon apparently slowing down. But as John Libertini of Northwest News reports here, labor unions are still riding a wave of support. There were big victories at Amazon warehouses in New York, but at Starbucks, wins came at a cost. Amazon and others have now been starting to ramp up their union defenses. Silicon Valley high-tech expert Rob Enderley says companies may be better prepared to fight back, but that isn't always necessary. Best defense for unionization is just treat the employees better so the cost of the union exceeds its benefit. High turnover, pay, and benefits got the blame for failed union efforts in Alabama. The Starbucks experience. Howard Schultz came back to Starbucks in April, but the company continued its heavy-handed approach by closing stores that tried to unionize. Starbucks has almost unlimited resources, and it appears is absolutely determined to fight this to the death. That's John Logan, a professor of labor and employment studies. Not fixing the core problems, ultimately they're not successful. Enderly believes the union wave is still rising. The continued economic downturn, plus the advent of AI and mechanization is likely going to continue to drive interest in unions. And union regulators are paying close attention. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. As we continue to look at the top stories of the week ending December 31st, giving away a fortune worth billions of dollars is a lot tougher than losing billions in the stock market. That's what local tech moguls are learning after a brutal financial year. Take Jeff Bezos, for example. He told CNN Business last month making plans to donate his fortune to charity have been vexing. It's not easy. Um, you know, b- building Amazon was not easy. It took a lot of hard work, a bunch of very smart teammates, and I'm finding philanthropy is, is very similar. It's not easy. Uh, it's really hard. By contrast, Bezos lost nearly half of his net worth in 2022 without lifting a finger. The Washington Post reports the value of his Amazon stock plunged by almost 50%, costing him $84 billion. But don't worry, the Post reports he is still the world's fourth richest person, worth about $108 billion. The report says other local tech moguls took big financial hits this year, including Bill Gates, whose Microsoft stock holdings lost $28.7 billion in value. Gates' old pal, former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer, lost $20.2 billion. Gates and Ballmer also remain comfortably among the world's world's 10 richest people. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Post-pandemic and restaurants, have they fully recovered? Is your favorite restaurant still open? We'll get to that story among more just ahead here on Northwest News Radio. And for another top story of this past week, Seattle's once red hot real estate market continues now to cool off. It's not just Seattle. The nation's housing market is still feeling the effects of higher mortgage rates and concerns over the economy. From September to October, average housing prices here in the Seattle area dropped 1%, according to the latest Standard & Poor's CoreLogic case 
Schiller Index. That's a larger drop than the national average. And on an annual basis, Seattle area prices in October were up 4.5% over the previous year. That's the smallest annual increase here in three years. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. You're listening to Northwest News this week, ending for the week of December 31st. A way for you to catch up in stories you might have missed. We have more for you in just a moment. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. Let's continue now. Robocalls that aren't for legitimate business are the focus of a new bill request from the state attorney general in the upcoming session. Here's Ryan Harris. Those pesky robocalls are usually designed to separate you from your money, often by scaring you with things that would never actually happen. The IRS is filing lawsuits against you. Or by playing on other emotions and even your faith. This is Prophet Manasseh. An angel appeared before me and began to give me a word for you. Press one right now so that you can hear this word. The new bill from Attorney General Bob Ferguson and University Place Democrat Representative Mari Levitt would make it a violation of the Consumer Protection Act to call people on the federal do not call list to use fake numbers known as spoofing and for phone companies to allow such activity when they know it's happening. The bill would allow legitimate businesses to use auto dialers to contact customers who gave consent for automatic messages, but it would require any sales pitch to come from a live person. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. The first half billion dollars in opioid settlement money expected to reach Washington cities and counties by the end of this week. Now local jurisdictions must decide how to spend that money. Corwin Hake with a story. Lawsuits filed and settled by multiple state attorneys general will eventually bring well over a billion dollars into our state. Washington AG Bob Ferguson warns there are limits on how the money can be spent. All these funds must be used to combat the opioid epidemic. That's how the funds must be used. That's how the settlements are structured. That's how it has to be done. But within those parameters, he says, are many possible destinations. Addiction treatment and prevention programs, for example. Also, bolstering first responder budgets to meet the crisis. And support for mothers whose babies were born with opioid-related neonatal disorders. The payments will be spread out over 17 years, giving communities hard hit by the opioid crisis a kind of annuity with which to fight that crisis. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Well, before the COVID-19 pandemic, misinformation about measles vaccines fueled outbreaks and kept some children from getting routine vaccinations. Now, about three years after the pandemic hit, the familiar fight over vaccines leading to a resurgence in easily preventable illnesses. We have a story we found in the Washington Post. Once again, Taylor Van Size. Lena, you begin your report with the measles outbreak in Columbus, Ohio. How bad is the outbreak there, and how do vaccination numbers shake out among the infected children? This outbreak in Ohio has now infected 82 children. Most of them are old enough to get the shots, but their parents have chosen not to have them get the shots. And so it is now the largest outbreak of measles this year. The director of the Columbus Health Department said that is what is causing this outbreak to spread like wildfire. Measles is one of the most contagious pathogens on the planet. And that is why when you see there's a measles outbreak, the public health departments will often post, you know, exact location and the times that the person was there. Not all of it, though, is just, uh, oh, darn, I, I'm not, you know, on my normal schedule at the, the pediatrician anymore. There's quite a bit of public sentiment that's against vaccinations now. How, how have the numbers changed since before the pandemic hit in about 2020? 
We are getting an inkling into that. There was a Kaiser Family Foundation poll that came out recently, and they found that more than a third of parents with children under 18, which is about 28% of all adults, now say that parents should be the ones to be able to decide not to vaccinate their kids for measles, mumps, and rubella to attend public school, even if that means remaining unvaccinated may create health risks for other people. That number has grown. In 2019, polling found that only less than a quarter of parents, or 16% of all adults, felt that way. And they dove deeper into the attitude change and found that most of it comes from people who identify as or lean Republican. So 44% of those people say parents should be able to opt out of childhood vaccines. And that's more than double the 20% who felt that way in 2019. And it's not just measles seeing a resurgence, right? Chicken pox and polio too. We have one case of paralytic polio that was reported earlier this summer. Paralytic polio is like, you know, the most severe. So that means there's many cases of other polio asymptomatic that's spreading. And then in chicken pox, I talked to Ann Zink, who works as the chief medical officer for Alaska's health department. And she also works as an emergency room doctor. And a few weeks ago, she said she saw her first case of full-blown chickenpox in a young adult woman who walked into the ER covered in these painful lesions. And the woman told her that she and her family did not believe in vaccinations and that she thought that chickenpox no longer existed. There's much more to this. You can find it online at WashingtonPost.com from Lena Sun. As we continue through the pile of stories here to help you catch up for this past week, one of which, returns of gifts. More complicated? Things you need to know? There is some changes, and we'll get to that story just ahead. Meanwhile, restaurants and entertainment venues still have not fully recovered from the effects of the pandemic. We have a story from the Washington Post here of Laura Riley. Laura, hit me first with those front-of-house numbers. We understand kitchen staff are still staying busy, but there are still empty tables out there. Absolutely. So there are business at, at, you know, sit-down business at restaurants is still down 16% from pre-pandemic. And the interesting thing is that that exact 16% has been picked up by takeout, uh, delivery, and drive through And the bulk of it is drive through uh, I was shocked to learn that, so 13% up for drive through since pre-pandemic, and that in total, 39% of all restaurant traffic now is in that drive through line. It's amazing, but it also is driving some really interesting innovation. A couple months ago, we talked about uh, Flippy the Robot at a, at a jack-in-the-box restaurant. Um, but there's also something called Taco Bell Defy in Minnesota. What's the gimmick there? Well, it's not a gimmick. They're really they're prototyping, and they're not alone. So Taco Bell's doing this. McDonald's is doing this. Everyone's thinking about doing this. Uh, designing a new restaurant that has no dining room at all. It's not dine-in. It is basically designed, it's kind of like a supercharged drive-through. So three, four, five drive-through lines, some for customers picking up their own orders and some for delivery. I downloaded DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats all at the beginning of the pandemic. It's, you know, it's really convenient for me as, as the consumer. Are we sticking with that ultra-convenient ordering across the nation? Well, we've switched it up a little bit. So DoorDash and Grubhub are holding their own. They're not growing significantly, but they're not falling off. But in addition to that, 
many restaurant chains, small chains, medium and huge chains, are developing their own uh, delivery app, having their own delivery fleet. They're doing app-based loyalty programs to really hook people in because, you know, you go, oh, well, if I only buy, if I buy one more, then I get the freebie. So we're seeing a lot more uh, digital ordering, even not through those third-party uh, delivery agents, uh, partly because they take a big cut. And for a lot of restaurants that have very narrow margins, you know, let's say 8% in the best of times, a company like DoorDash that may take 15, 20, 30% of your total cut, um, a lot of restaurants found that it wasn't viable. We're also eating differently as well. How have menus changed over the last few years? We really have seen in the past three years, menus get shorter, tighter, lean more towards comfort food, towards burgers and fries, uh, towards the, the familiar. Maybe esoteric foods or the more exotic foods have kind of dropped off a bit um, in light of this. And some of that is consumer uh, expectations and desires. We all have been needed a little extra nurturance and a little comfort in the past few years. But then a lot of it is that labor has been stratospherically high, um, you know, up over 9% this year. Um, on top of another 9% last year for restaurants. So they need to do what they can do uh, to minimize those labor costs, to maximize the dishes on the menus that really uh, have the greatest profit margin and the greatest shelf life. Um, and so there's been a lot of tinkering with an eye to, you know, chiseling a buck off here and there from their bottom line. There's a lot more to the story, and you can always find it online at WashingtonPost.com from Laura Riley. Northwest News This Week is heard every week at this very time here on radio at AM 1000 and FM 97.7. Also, it's a podcast found at NWNewsRadio.com. Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of December 31st, continues. This is Northwest News This Week. Hi, Mark Christopher. It's good to have you with us. How will Tacoma solve its growing homelessness problem? $20,000 will help pay for a conversion on how to spend $100 million. Tacoma Mayor Victoria Woodards and the City Council have approved $20,000 to support a partnership with the University of Washington Tacoma branch. To host community conversations in 2023 on solutions for homelessness. This is a community with plenty to say. Amelia Tuyamato owns and operates a gas station convenience store on Hosmer Street in South Tacoma. She's fed up with politicians and conversations. Vote for me, I'll do this, I'll do this. They get the vote, what do they do? Not a damn thing. And you know why? Because they don't have to live out here. They don't have to drive here and see all the trash and all the people walking around doing heroin, doing whatever they do. They don't have to deal with that. We we have to deal with that. What do they care? She tells Northwest News Radio it's not enough to simply shelter the unhoused. Teach them. Have a program. Have something going on. If they're not going to work, let them do a program or something in their classes where it helps them to know how to survive. The News Tribune reports Tacoma's biennial budget includes $101 million to address homelessness and affordable housing. Sometime next month, city and UW leaders will meet to launch the community conversations. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Artificial intelligence made great leaps in 2022 with the general public now able to generate art and literature by inserting a few keywords into a program. 
But as students return to class, what can teachers do to make sure their students are submitting their own work and not that of a computer? Taylor Van Sice here of Northwest News Radio. Pranchu, these programs are capable of remarkable things, and maybe that's the first tip off for teachers is that their students' work is too good, but how is a teacher supposed to screen for something like this? You know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so the the new tool is something called ChatGPT, and it's essentially a place where you can ask questions, and it turns out answers that are really lifelike. And in some ways, it almost seems like a student has answered the questions. And so there are some old school ways that you can kind of check. We talk with teachers in this piece. Some ways, for example, are, well, just reading the piece and seeing if the essays are mimicking the style of a student or if it seems a little different than the style in which they've been writing from the past. Um, And in other ways, you can do some simple things such as checking if actually, you know, with a fine tooth comb, whether all the facts are correct, because in many ways, you know, this artificial intelligence chatbot is really good at sounding human-like, but it's also, you know, stumbles a lot on basic facts that sometimes people would get right that you wouldn't expect to get wrong. Um, and then there are uh, some hosts of technology, such as, you know, the website turnitin.com is trying to create a tool that you can use to put text into this tool and it can see if it's creating, you know, created by a chatbot or by a human or There are other tools that are trying to be developed, but, um, you know, there's still a little bit of a ways to making a more robust piece of technology to actually detect the cheaters. Um, So it's still a little bit of a a guessing game to see how students and teachers are going to adapt to this technology. The, The temptation, though, for students and professionals, for that matter, must be immense. What are you hearing from students who have opted to use ChatGPT on their homework? Yeah, well, you know, we ended up talking to, um, you know, some students and one particular student was a, a senior at a, uh, a Midwestern state school, as, uh, as we were allowed to say to, to him, because he didn't want to get expelled for telling us what he did. But the minute ChatGPT, this artificial intelligence chatbot came out, he thought, well, let me use it for this take home quiz that I've got. And he, uh, you know, this quiz asked him some definitions and he put those, you know, you know, definition prompts into chat GPT and out popped the right answers. And then he was like, wow, this is great. And so what did he turn to next? He's a, he's a computer scientist. And so he uh, ended up putting a more tricky, complex piece of computer code question into ChatGPT, which, you know, he asked ChatGPT, how do I finish this piece of computer code? And within seconds, it out popped the right answer, according to him. And, you know, he's already been using it. And he said he's going to keep using it because if he can, you know, game a quiz by using ChatGPT, then the professors aren't asking hard enough questions. It makes you wonder, though, how important the process of writing is to how we learn, because you know, if you're asking the computer the right questions or the right concepts, it's got to show some amount of engagement and growth, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also is an interesting way, just as, uh, you know, classrooms adapted to the calculator, they're going to have to adapt to this. It's not that this may be, you know, we talked to some teachers who said that it's not that this is going to be a nightmare. You know, some are, you know, some are in panic that this could definitely, you know, bring a lot of cheating to the schools. But then others are like, well, you know, this is a time for us to actually think about our questions in a more, you know, deeper way. And so make it a little harder to answer, you know, just with technology. And maybe we probe some more critical thinking skills as well. And so, you know, either way, it's definitely going to going to force people to, to reckon with how, how these things are going to impact the classrooms going forward.
consequences yet to be seen. You can read much more about this online at WashingtonPost.com from Pranchu Verma. Some major events when it comes to sports headed for our region, and we'll get to Bill Swartz in the rundown here in our next segment. But let's talk about gift returns. Malls were certainly packed the day after Christmas weekend with some of those returns. John Libertini of Northwest News had a story. Returning gifts this year could be a little more difficult. You'll want to hear this. The threat of a recession, people spending less, and soaring costs have six in ten retailers changing their return policies. I shop at Nordstrom's. I shop at... Connie Kendall's trip to the mall may have saved her a few bucks. I think Amazon's the only place that sometimes you have to pay a fee to return something. I don't like that. It's customer satisfaction versus the bottom line. They'll still take it back, but you have to put some money in the game. USA Today national business correspondent Sharice Jones on CBS This Morning. They would like order two or three of the same size and then they would send back what they didn't want that exploded during the pandemic and they just can't keep doing that. It adds up. One in five holiday gifts are expected to be returned. Darrell Herman. Because I wanted to exchange these for another size, we thought we'd come out here. Here is the Alderwood Mall in Linwood, where parking spaces were hard to come by the day after Christmas. John Lubertini, Northwest News Radio. Top stories of the week gathered by our reporters, our anchors, and editors. You're listening to Northwest News this week, ending December the 31st. Don't go away yet. Northwest This Week continues. Welcome back. Next year, the Emerald City rolls out the red carpet for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And lots more. Bill Swartz tells us how and why Seattle is landing some of the country's sports biggies. It takes state-of-the-art stadiums. Right now, we have three great venues in Seattle that can uh, host a lot of different types of events. Beth Knotts, President CEO of the Seattle Sports Commission, partnering with pro teams and universities to bid on events like the Women's NCAA Basketball Tournament. The Connecticut Huskies will play for a national title. In late March, Climate Pledge Arena has a unique regional format. The equivalent of having a Sweet 16 and Elite 8 all in one fell swoop. When pursuing events, organizations want to know about Seattle's infrastructure, hotels, tourist attractions, and a whole lot more. Well, it's paramount now. Uh, It is a priority for many of these events that uh, uh, diversity and inclusion and equitable access to these sports Uh, are also a priority for the host city. Next month, venues will be selected for the July Major League Baseball All-Star festivities. What a start to this derby. 32 shots for Julio Rodriguez and a standing ovation. No longer just an All-Star game. It's really a week long of activities uh, that include the Home Run Derby, Uh, the Futures softball game, celebrity softball game, and a red carpet arrival. How many billions of eyeballs are watching these two men 12 yards apart? Messi scores! And while the World Cup 2026 might seem far away, planning committees kick off important work soon. Then it's really starting to hone in on the, the various committee groups around transportation, sustainability, human rights, communication, all of these things that will uh, begin that planning uh, because this does take multiple years to, uh, to prepare for. Seattle King County has scored the 2024 KPMG Women's PGA Championship and also on the radar, the NHL All-Star Game. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. 
Another story we want to make sure you heard. A UW-educated scientist from Bainbridge Island travels to South America, where she becomes a pioneer in reintroducing jungle cats into the Peruvian Amazon. Fact brings idea of a new documentary, Wildcat, now streaming on Prime Video. In Wildcat, Samantha Zwicker is faced with rewilding two ocelot cubs, Khan and Keanu, something rarely attempted or achieved. In, in this film, you see two ocelots that kind of came to us to like mold into being a wild cat. So it's a really, it's a really special story. Zwicker graduated from Bainbridge High School in 2009 and is currently earning a quantitative ecology doctorate from the University of Washington. She tells the podcast Rewriting Hollywood, rehabilitating the two ocelots seen in Wildcat led to the formation of a nonprofit dedicated to that pursuit. And we are, you know, the first carnivore specialized rehabilitation and rewilding center in Peru. And that has a lot to do with the, the animals that you see in this film. As if that weren't dramatic enough, Wildcat also tells the story of a traumatized Afghanistan war vet who ends up working with Zwicker and the ocelots and recalibrating his own life. I feel like I've done something good. I've seen the jungle change people. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And there you go, a way to catch up on stories you missed this past week here. And I got to tell you, it's been quite a year here at Northwest News Radio. A big thank you to all our staff of reporters and anchors and editors. And we're glad you're finding a use for this program each and every week. We're ready to start a whole new year. And again, we can't do any of this and wouldn't be around if it wasn't for your loyalty to this radio station. Northwest News This Week is heard every week at this time here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. And as a podcast, you'll find it with all of our programs programs of this past year at nwnewsradio.com. Hey, if you enjoyed this program, like a podcast, share a rating, would you? And a review, easy to do, only it takes a moment at Apple Podcast. Northwest News This Week, produced by our good friend Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. Thank you guys for a tremendous year. I'm Mark Christopher, and on behalf of all of us here at Northwest News Radio, thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year, and here we go for 2023. We'll see you next time. <laughs>